Pop 55. The way we all became the Brady Bunch, how a canceled sitcom became the beloved pop culture icon we are still talking about today. Right, Kimberly? Yep. (laughs) This is Kimberly Potts, the author of The Way We All Became the Brady Bunch, and you're listening to Pop with Ken Mills. Welcome back to Pop with Ken Mills. Today, we are talking about all things Brady Bunch. Today, we welcome Kimberly Potts. Kimberly Potts is a TV and pop culture journalist who has written for Vulture, The Hollywood Reporter, TV Guide, The Los Angeles Times, Yahoo, Variety, People.com, US Weekly, E! Online, Esquire.com, AOL, Movies.com, and the list goes on and on and on. Welcome to the show, Kimberly Potts. Thank you so much, Ken. I'm excited to chat with you today. I am so glad you're here. Looking forward to this discussion. One of the things that we do here is we look at pop culture, whether it be everything from movies, TV, music, to collecting stamps, to books. And today we are talking about your book, The Way We All Became the Brady Bunch, How the Cancelled Sitcom Became the Beloved Pop Culture Icon We Are Still Talking Today. That's a, that's a mouthful. <laughs> it's a pretty long title. I think most people are just uh, going with the main part of the title, the way we all became the Brady Bunch. And um, yeah, it is a really long title. Mm-hmm. Well, I try to be thorough here. Let's take a look at the inside flap of your book, right? So someone's at Barnes and Noble or whatever, and they open mm-hmm. up your book. And this is what it says. Here's the story of the show that revolutionized the family sitcom and became a pop culture touchstone. There isn't a person in this country who hasn't heard of the Brady Bunch or heard its earworm of a theme song. The show has lived a dozen lives from its original comedy debut, multiple spinoffs and big screen movies to the football legends, the movie superheroes and Emmy winning TV auteurs, including Vince Gilligan and Jill Soloway it has inspired. Not bad for a series that was given a critical drubbing when it premiered and never finished a season ranked higher than 31 in the ratings. That's pretty interesting. When you think about that, there are two cultural TV shows that were kind of like the bastard stepchildren of uh, television in many ways. And those are Star (laughs) Trek and The Mm -hmm. Brady Bunch. Mm-hmm. Both of them never really got the respect that they would garner later. Mm-hmm. And they both found a second life in syndication. They have a lot in common. It's absolutely amazing. They're both influenced by Lucille Ball, but we'll get into that later, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> I, I mean, just so many fascinating little little turns and, and uh, uh, connections in the stories of, of both of those shows. Now, I guess if we're going to start this out, the story starts with Sherwood Schwartz, who created the show, right? Mm-hmm. He was the Gilligan's Island creator as well, and, and that's what he was doing when uh, the idea for the Brady Bunch came to him. Mm-hmm. And like Gilligan's Island, the Brady Bunch has that iconic theme song that sets up the entirety of what the show is about. You know, Stan Lee over at Marvel Comics, he used to have this thing in every Marvel comic, you'd open it up and it'd say, Peter Parker was a teenage whatever and was bit by a radioactive spider. So then anybody that was picking up a Marvel comic for the first time, they'd be able to tell 
this is exactly what it's about, right? Mm -hmm. That's what you got with Gilligan's Island. That's what you got with the Brady Bunch. And it's sad because we now live in a time where this might be a theme song. Da-dun! That might be the entirety. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. I miss the theme songs, too. Um, Yeah, it was exposition for both of those shows, but ended up being really great, iconic theme songs as well. And, you know, I think even people who... As, as you were, you referred to there from the book club copy, people who've never even seen an episode of the Brady Bunch show know the theme song. Mm-hmm. Here's the story of a lovely lady who was bringing up three very lovely girls. All of them had hair of gold, like their mother, the youngest one in curls. Here's the story of a man named Brady. Now, bit of silliness right up front. What are you as far as the Brady's? You know, like you, you have these things like the National Enquirer. Pick which three stooges you identify with and it'll say something about your personality. Uh, <laughs> who do you identify with most as a Brady character? Um, I guess I don't even know that it's that I identify so much as that I it's he's my favorite, um, Peter Brady. Mm-hmm. I just think he was kind of the the nicest kind of the most laid back but was always trying to do different things and of course I do love the fact that he uh, fashioned himself as Scoop Brady at one point so uh, the journalist in me appreciates the Scoop Bradyness of it all um, but I, yeah he's my favorite character and uh, I you know that is very funny I do think that most Brady fans do have a favorite and probably for some reason that they identify with uh, many Marshas or many people who wanted to be Marsha. Um, probably at the time, not so many who I, who would say they identified with Jan, but I think Jan has kind of like everything Brady has kind of had a little comeback or, or a second life um, as a character that people now appreciate a little more. And, and um, you know, the, she's certainly the poster child for, for the middle child syndrome. Mm-hmm. But what about you? Who is your favorite Brady or the one that you identify with? Well, I don't know so much if it's a uh, Brady, but it is Johnny Bravo. That's that's who I want to oh. be, right? That's who I want to be. But okay. I really feel that I'm more a Peter. I like that. Because I, I uh, you know, I can do the pork chops and applesauce <laughs> and all that. And, uh, <laughs> you know, Peter always tried. He seemed to, to have the most heart. Yes. And I don't know if it was because of, like, Jan, the middle kid thing. See, it's weird. We always look at Jan as having the middle kid syndrome, but not so much Peter. And he's the one who went through the changes, if you know what I mean. It's true. It's true. <laughs> and as you, I, I think you really touched on it. For me, he, he definitely is the one who has the most heart. He was always trying something, trying to get a job or uh, have his 
job at the bicycle shop, the ill-fated job. I mean, just all those things that he was trying to <laughs> to master the Humphrey Bogart voice for pork chops and applesauce. Um, yeah, he was he was always just trying, and and um, uh, I think one of the things that I love most about the show in general, and that maybe is something that other people find cheesy about it, but I I really appreciate as an adult now that uh, Mike and Carol really were trying to turn out good people into the world. They were, you know, they weren't just concerned about being their children's friends. They weren't just concerned about them getting great grades or any of those things specifically. They just kind of overall wanted them to be good humans. And um, I think that's something that, again, as adults, we can appreciate a lot about the show. And the show is really groundbreaking. I mean, we now look at it, we look back at the Brady Bunch and it seems so weak sauce. You know what I mean? It seems yeah. so, it seems so pap and pablum. It seems so harmless, mm-hmm. but it really was, it takes a village before it was, it takes a village, right? You had not one parent or two parent coming from two different families merging into one. And, uh, after the success of the TV series Gilligan's Island, Sherwood Schwartz conceived the idea of the Brady Bunch after reading in the Los Angeles Times that 30% of marriages in the United States have a child or children from a previous marriage. Mm-hmm. And this affected what was to come. And as weird as we think about the like we think about Little House on the Prairie being wholesome. We think about the Waltons being wholesome and the Brady Bunch is right up there, right? But it really was kind of shocking to see a mixed family at the time. That's the thing I think that people kind of forget about and how it was groundbreaking at the time. It was really the first TV series to show, especially a family that large, um, and as you you kind of alluded, alluded to, they had this bonus mom with Alice. So it was really a, a very interesting mix of what, you know, this new this new blended family was. Um, and the other thing that was so interesting about it at the time was that it was one of the first shows, if not the first show, again, to focus on a family this large, where the focus of the show was the kids, not the parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was something that Sherwood Schwartz very, very specifically uh, intended. And the if you go through the storylines of all the seasons, you know, it's it kind of cycles through. Each kid gets a turn in the spotlight and then they start over and do it again and again and again. And um, he wanted it to be a show for kids to watch with their parents. But with the focus on them so that they would identify with the characters like we were just talking about, that they would identify with the storylines and the things that those characters were going through because they were going through them themselves. And then there was the staggered age group for both the boys and the girls so that as kids grew up, they were identifying with the the next oldest kid. And um, it was really, as you said, people think of it as being very simple, very kind of frivolous sometimes. But he, Sherwood Schwartz, had a very specific plan, a very specific thing that he wanted to achieve with the show, very specific demographic and and, uh, audience that he was making it for. And he stuck to his guns. And I think that's one of the many reasons why it it is such an enduring classic. Mm -hmm. Now, Sherwood Schwartz 
had an original title. Actually, the the show went through a couple titles. Would you like to share those with us? Uh, there, <laughs> there were many, many titles. Um, yours and mine, yes. Yours and mine, um, he, obviously there was a movie, and that movie, the success of the movie, uh, Yours, Mine, and Ours, helped spark the, the show finally making it to the air. Um, but I think in the end, the Brady Bunch was just the one that, um, the Brady Brood was another kind of configuration of that. And he kind of did a little poll of everybody in the cast uh, and the network, and and everybody agreed that the Brady Bunch was just a, a simple but elegant, for lack of a better word, title, and, and that that was the one they would go with. But no one ever totally agreed, of course. You know, everybody had a different opinion. Uh, they thought the Brady Brood sounded a little too, too rough, too tough. Um, but the Wild Bunch was a popular movie at the time, and there were others who worried that that people would associate the Brady Bunch with that, and so that that could be problematic. Um, but of course, in hindsight, I think we can all agree the the Brady Bunch is kind of the perfect title. It's got that great sense of alliteration, and you can absolutely. I mean, once you see that iconic starting, it all makes sense. But the the show started out as yours and mine. Mm-hmm. And there was some pushback from the studio at the time, and they tried to get this show developed. He shopped it at all three networks mm-hmm. till they finally wound up at ABC, and even it was in danger of being developed until a movie called Yours, Mine, and Ours, starring Lucille Ball, actually became somewhat of a hit that they kind of said, we need to get our kind of thing going here. And it turns out it's what they already had in their backyard, right? <laughs> Absolutely. They had been, he had discussed it with, uh, Sherwood had discussed it with all three major networks. Um, they all loved it, but they all wanted some little change. CBS didn't want them to do uh, a pilot episode. They wanted them to just jump right into the story. NBC wanted a new ending to the pilot. They didn't want them to have the the honeymoon. They they didn't think that people would buy the fact that they went home and got the kids and brought them on their honeymoon with them. ABC wanted them to make wanted Sherwood to make it longer, but not by adding any new material or new story. He they just wanted him to turn it into uh, a TV movie length pilot because they had just started their TV movies. That could have been disastrous. Absolutely. Can you imagine? I mean, that pilot is it's a tight storyline. Everything that happens is good. It is fun in it, but to try to stretch just that story, those scenes into 90 minutes would have been, as he said to them, uh, I could do that, but it would be boring and people would never watch it. And the show would, would go no further than the pilot. So he stuck to his guns. Um, he didn't need the money at the time. He had just come off of the success of Gilligan's Island and so he he shelved the idea and said, you know, maybe we'll revisit it some at some point. Maybe we won't. And then yours, mine, and ours, the movie with Lucille Ball and Henry Fonda, uh, who blend their <laughs> their separate broods of uh, a total of eighteen kids into one ginormous family. Um, the success of that, of course, Hollywood loves nothing more than something that has already been a success. Mm-hmm. So uh, they they came knocking on Sherwood's door again, and and uh, ABC agreed to let him make the pilot the way he wanted to. And your book goes into depth talking about how 
he came to this idea how we got to the point of putting the show together, how the cast was assembled, the frustrations with the cast and mm-hmm. the things that worked and the things that didn't. And you also go into depth about how the theme song was created, but not just the theme song, because that was such an iconic thing that you saw when you saw the beginning of the Brady Bunch. And it all started with him trying to figure out a way to please everybody that was in the cast. Yes. Because you had Mike and Carolyn, who was going to get top billing, and then you had Ann B. Davis and her place in the show. And he was trying to figure out a way to make this happen. And it all started with him just sketching a simple tic-tac-toe, <laughs> right? That was it, the, the tic-tac-toe board. I mean, he um, it was to solve a problem, much like the theme song of The Brady Bunch and Gilligan's Island. It was a way to solve a problem of not having to tell, uh, you know, in, in within the episodes every week or even ever, frequently remind people what the basic storylines were. Um, so this was a, another way to to kind of get that point across and to get, make sure everyone got the billing that they that they their contract required. And it seemed like a very simple thing. It was also another element of the show that was groundbreaking. That's certainly not something that we had seen a lot of in TV. Uh, and specifically the way he did it with all the individual boxes with with the uh, cast members in it. It was incredibly groundbreaking, and we see it now. So, I mean, it it feels like every week there's a new reference to um, that box. It, it, right now we're seeing it with uh, all of us having to communicate via Zoom, <laughs> <laughs> right? That I've heard so many people refer to you know, their Zoom screen as the Brady Bunch, because that is what we will forever associate with kind of that uh, setup. No matter how many boxes there are, I think we will always associate the the basic tic-tac-toe design with the Brady Bunch. Mm-hmm. I know that every time that I see Jimmy Fallon do a group sing-along, right? <laughs> yes. That's what we think about, because whether it's the cast of the Avengers singing a song or the the yes. roots in him doing an 80s cover that's what you think of and they all reference you know the the famous looking at one another looking right to left and stuff like that and mm-hmm. that uh the avengers one i think that's the that may be one of the all-time best homage slash spoofs to the brady opening sequence mm-hmm. the cast of star wars it goes on and on how yeah. many people and they recently did stuck in the middle with you and Jimmy does the clowns to the left and me jokers to the right, and they all react to one another. And you can't help but think of the Brady Bunch starting, right? Absolutely. Your book goes into how the title cards were created, why Mike's name appears where it does, and so on and so forth. And I'm talking about the, the character Mike, of course, mm-hmm. who was uh-huh. played by Robert Reed. And you had Florence Henderson as Carol Brady and Ann B. Davis. And those those were the people that were the quarterback of this, right? Even though I think right. the first person cast, according to your book, was Cindy Brady, right? That's correct. She was the uh, the kids. They, there was a lot of effort, obviously. They saw hundreds of kids. Um, Sherwood didn't want kids who were already famous for other things. He didn't want kids who kind of had a lot of stage mother uh, or parent, um, 
who were going to try to run the show or, or, you know, be difficult and, and demand more attention for their child. He wanted nice kids um, who would get along with each other, who he wanted them to have fun. And the biggest thing, and again, another groundbreaking thing that he did was that he cast kids based on what he saw of them when he met them and things that he could pick out of their personalities and help form the characters. The, there was no set description for the the kids when they were being cast. He really cast kids and then really shaped the character a lot to to fit their interests, their hobbies, their personalities. Mm-hmm. So when he saw Susan Olsen as Cindy, in his mind, she already had that lisp that is now famous and iconic, right? Exactly. And he was just so charmed by her. She was very fun and outgoing and, and spirited and um, had a lot of personality and, and was talking to him about all these things that she had done and seen. And uh, he was just immediately charmed by her. And then you've got this idea. And I, and, and, and I think this was one of the things that really made the show stand out was that uh, for me as a, as a young a male child, I could identify with, plus I have dark hair and, and that's something that enters into it, right? Because the kids were chosen because Carol had blonde hair right? and Mike had dark hair. So they were hiring some people based on the strengths of their hair color, right? Yes. They had two sets. They had a set of female blonde children and male blonde children and uh, dark-haired female children and dark-haired male children because they weren't sure the mom and dad weren't cast at mm-hmm. the the point. So they had two sets ready to go. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we ended up with the, the blonde children, female children, because we ended up ultimately with uh, Florence Henderson. Mm-hmm. And we also had Mike Lookinland as Bobby. He had to do a little bit of dying, right? He did. Poor, poor Mike Lookinland. He would frequently, under those hot lights, have the the hair dye running down his face, and they would have to stop and fix that. And um, <laughs> probably was was not a lot of fun for him. But they thought, you know, so strongly of him uh, to play Bobby, and and he was willing to do it. He actually had another. Uh, job offer at the time. He had been offered the lead in Courtship of Eddie's Father, which was also a great sitcom from that time. Um, but his parents strongly urged, made the decision for him. Of course, they, they didn't just allow him to make the decision himself. But the family made the decision for him to take the Brady Bunch role because they really thought it would be better for him to have a cast full of other kids, to be around all the time, to be on that set. And uh, I don't I don't think he regrets that decision at all. Yeah, and it's uh, there's there's times that his hair is really super dark, like jet <laughs> black. It's it 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 almost looks as bad as Jan's wig later. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but there was something about like I, I I know that for me when the show first aired, it was one of those must see TV things. Mm-hmm. Not not so much because I thought it was cool, but 
it was something that was for us. And by that, I mean someone who was a kid, right? Yeah. The show premiered September 26, 1969 and ran till March 8th, 1974. During Mm -hmm. that time, this was the time that I was buying lunch boxes and recording Scooby-Doo with my little cassette recorder and all those things, right? Those, so I was that target audience. I was also part of that, uh, uh, Partridge family and stuff like that. So it was just something that you could let the kids watch and not have to worry about things. But I think that the fact that they had the boys and the girls, there was something for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. And out of those six different personalities, there was someone you could identify with and someone that made sense to you as a person. And there was also things to look up to within them as well uh and some things you might want to want to avoid like for example being jealousy and things like that like for example we talk about how seinfeld uh, they had their the seinfeld rule of no hugging well no hugging hugging, and no no learning learning. (laughs) right and this show was the antithesis of this (laughs) the brady bunch wanted you to learn and hug every episode right very much so. So it's interesting to see how far we've come culturally, right? Now, your book goes backstage to things that went smooth and things that did not go smooth. For example, mm-hmm. I'm talking about the actor who played Mike Brady, Robert Reed. He he really was not a fan of this show. He was not. It was sad that he really never could... Um, kind of put that aside and really appreciate fully, you know, the situation that they had with the show because he loved his castmates. He especially loved the kids and was, you know, a father figure to them. Um, He cared very much about them being happy on the set, about them being well, you know, taken care of and uh, looked after on the set. And he cared about them, in a fatherly way, in a larger sense, he famously took them on a trip to London, uh, just him and um, the set school teacher, uh, none of their parents, he really took responsibility for them. He took them on a trip to London, he wanted them to have that experience, he wanted them to have the experience of seeing the city, but also of, um, he was very, very devoted Shakespearean actor. And um, he wanted them to be exposed to those kind of things. They stopped in New York on the way and kind of had a slumber party at the Plaza Hotel. And he, you know, he really cared about those things. He bought them all Super 8 movie cameras one year for Christmas because he thought if they were going to be on the set all the time and, and have a lot of downtime, this would be another thing for them to do and to learn and to have another knowledge of another aspect of, of filmmaking. Um, so that if they did kind of want to have these careers, even after childhood, that, that they would know as much about the industry and, and their craft as they could. And so it was, it's incredibly touching and for all of the rotten kind of behavior that, that we know stories about, um, that he's told himself and that Barry Williams shared in his great book, Growing Up Brady, uh, which I think is one of the best books ever written about TV, um, you know, we there are a lot of, of rotten stories we've heard about Robert Reed's behavior, especially towards Sherwood Shorts. 
but there are kind of these other things, the, this other side of him and the way that he interacted with the, the cast, especially the kid cast, that I think tempers that a bit. He was very unhappy with the show. He felt he should be doing more serious work. He felt he, he really wanted to be doing Shakespeare. He had done uh, a show, a TV show earlier called The Defenders, which was a very serious legal drama, very res- respected, very, very much ahead of its time, tackling topics that a lot of shows don't even tackle today. It was very much ahead of its time. And it was a show that was very by the book in terms of because it was legal, all the topics were legal. It was fact checked to death. You know, it, they, they had to get all of these details right. So when he came to the Brady Bunch and it was this, you know, family sitcom and much, much lighter, obviously, he just couldn't kind of wrap his mind around the fact that this was the the show that he was now doing and just kind of never accepted it. Even though he came back for every spinoff series and certainly kept in touch with the, the cast through the years, he still, he even... In the last spinoff that they did, The Brady's, he never really learned to love this show that was such a part of his life and that he is so beloved for. I mean, every time you at Mother's Day, when we see those polls about the all time favorite TV moms, Florence Henderson is always at the top or near the top. Uh, Mike Brady, uh, Robert Reed is always at the top or near the top of the favorite dads every Father's Day when we see those polls. But um, he really just never really appreciated what that meant. I think that the show that Sherwood Schwartz was doing and the show that Robert Reed wanted to do were two different things. I think that's safe to say, right? Very much. And he did not embrace the camp and silliness of it, right? Uh, Like, for example, there's the story that you tell in your book about the egg. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Uh, the egg story. He, uh, they wanted him to, to drop an egg and slip, drop it from getting it out of the refrigerator and then slip uh, on the egg. He insisted that that would not happen. That was just not realistic. And of course, he finally agreed to try it. And when he did, he slipped on the egg, um, not on purpose. He he just organically slipped on it. And he admitted afterwards, he said, you know, I deserved that right. He said to Ambi Davis, who was in the scene with him as Alice, he said, you know, I, I deserved that because I threw such a fuss. And, and of course, it ended up happening. My favorite story is the strawberry story where he, he loved, he had a set of Encyclopedia Britannicas, which was his main fact-checking source. And he went to it very often when he was unhappy with something in the script. And the episode where uh, Carol and Alice are competing with each other to see who can make the best strawberry jam, he's supposed to come home from work into the kitchen and say, it smells like strawberry heaven in here. He had an issue with that because he said, according to his Encyclopedia Britannica, strawberries don't have an odor when they're cooking. Everybody argued that that wasn't true. Um, You could smell on the set these strawberries, but he insisted that that it was not a fact because the Encyclopedia Britannica said that it wasn't. Even even though his nose knows that he's smelling strawberries cooking. 
Exactly. It's that old, who are you going to believe, you know, <laughs> me or your own nose, but uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica or your own nose. But he insisted that it wasn't true. And so they had to change it to a line that, that he would be comfortable with. And I think it was something I, I think he it, they ended up changing it to. It looks like strawberry heaven in here. Yeah. Or something like, I think I'm in strawberry heaven, heaven. or something. Exactly. Yeah. And that was fine with him then, but he could hold up production for hours on one little thing like that. And there was always a little thing like that. So it became exhausting for everyone. The kids were sort of aware of what was going on, but he, you know, they filmed their scenes mostly earlier in the day. And then after they went home for the day, the adults would film their scenes. And so they didn't always see, in fact, usually didn't see his worst behaviors which was good for them, of course, but poor Sherwood and his son, Lloyd Schwartz, who was a producer and director writer on the show, he they both really suffered a lot of uh, very mean, cruel uh, rants from Robert Reed. He would write memos to the network executives outlining the many ways that you know the the scripts were unacceptable to him. They weren't factual. They, things weren't realistic enough. Um, he would call Sherwood a hack to Lloyd. Sherwood was often in the writer's room or, you know, in the, in his office and Lloyd was the one on set and he would have to hear, you know, these rants about his father and how untalented he was and all of these things from Robert Reed and, and Sherwood had advised him don't argue back with him. That will only make the situation worse let's just try to get through it. Um, it was difficult. It was a difficult time and set uh, a lot of the time for the adult cast members. And Robert Reed admitted later in interviews where <laughs> he would use profanity yes. to a great degree to underline things. It seemed like that would get uh, Sherwood Schwartz's attention when he would use the F word, for example. Exactly. And it, not that Sherwood Schwartz was a prude himself. Uh, you know, he tells a great, uh, do, do you curse on the podcast? Sure. Yeah. He tells a great story about, um, you know, having fuck you money with, mm -hmm. with Gilligan's Island, which is why he was willing to let the, uh, the Brady Bunch sit on a shelf for a few years when, when the networks all wanted him to change things. Mm -hmm. So he certainly was no prude himself, but it was just the the harshness of, you know, this great family sitcom that in every other way was a pretty happy place to be, even on the set, and that everyone very much cared about the kids being very happy and, and having a good experience in their classroom and, and with each other and on the set. And then this one person just could not, you know, he was making good money. He was building a character that 50 years later is still beloved is still one of the top TV dads of all time, but he really couldn't see any of that for, you know, these little things of no, I'm not going to slip on an egg. No strawberries don't smell when they're cooking. He just couldn't get past those things and really, you know, enjoy this, um, this show that, that ended up meaning a lot to a lot of people at the time and and again 50 years later and including him because the thing that i get from your book is that robert reed seemed to be a person of his heart yes and by that it i mean that he was so passionate 
that mm-hmm. he wanted to do something that was better than the Brady Bunch. But at the same time, he had so much love and care for the kids and the other cast members that he just felt that they could do something better. But he always made sure that those kids were taken care of. As a matter of fact, uh, he followed them through throughout their life. And at the time of his passing, he made sure to speak to each one of them. Yes. So that relationship followed him throughout his life, not just on the uh, reoccurring uh, relaunches of the show or the TV movies and stuff like that, but he had an actual relationship with those kids. He really did. He really cared about all of them. And I, again, it's, I'm sure, you know, for Lloyd Schwartz and, and Sherwood before he, he passed, they certainly had different feelings about Robert Reed because again, they had really been insulted by him, really in cruel, you know, memos and and rants at them. But he really did care about those kids and and tried very hard to be a father figure to them. And again, he was one of the people who who really looked out for them on the set and and kept in touch with them. In Barry Williams' book, uh, the Growing Up Brady book, he gives him a little stash of those memos that he had, <laughs> had written all those years ago. He had kept copies of them and he gave a bunch of them to Barry and he includes the full text of several of them in his book. And he talks to him and says, you know, I really was that difficult and that he had said to one of his friends, his best friend, you know, was I really that difficult as, as all these these stories that have been told and she assured him that he was <laughs> that he had been and he knew it. I think he, you know, he was a very complicated guy in a lot of ways. And, and that was one of the, the biggest ways. But if you talk to any of the kids, they absolutely have nothing but great things to say about him and how he treated them and how he cared about them. And of course, at this point, they know all of the stories even the ones that they didn't witness at the time. Mm-hmm. And they acknowledge, you know, that he was difficult. But for them, the takeaway is, as you were just saying, he was someone who cared very passionately about doing work that he was proud of. And that's how they see it. They don't see him as being, you know, this this monster that was that was denigrating the work of people who were employing him and, and being cruel to them. They see him as someone who cared so much about them and just wanted all of them, as you said, to be doing good work. And it, it, this just wasn't a show that he was he was proud of. Um, although, again, you know, that one of the other complicated things about this guy is that he hated this show so much, but he was there for every spinoff series, no matter how kind of ridiculous the concept by which we mean the Brady Bunch Variety Hour, but yeah. uh, he he was there for all of them. And and when the the Brady girls get married, the Brady brides, they asked him, you know, why do you keep coming back for these shows? And for that one, he said, you know, no one is going to walk my daughters, my girls down the aisle, but me. He he hated it, but he also was not going to not be a part of this thing that he had helped create. And that moment where he's you know in your book talking about uh him giving those notes to barry williams right Mm -hmm. to me that's almost like a father-son moment where this is this is how i was 
don't be like this. You know what yeah. I mean? So there's, like I said, it seems to be all about heart. And if you look at the three adults in the cast, you've got Robert Reed, who had a, a serious career, I'm going to say, because I think in his mind, he thought this role was not a serious role even though it was just as entertaining as anything else. Mm -hmm. And then you had Florence Henderson, who was uh, a singer and and an actress who really didn't need this show, but she wound up in this spot. And then you had Ambie Davis, who was already, for all intents and purposes, retired as an actress. Right, right. So they were all assembled and built around the kids. And the one thing about this show that is so different than almost every other show and the only thing I can think of is even the Waltons isn't so much like this, but Little House on the Prairie is the really the only other one that I can think of to a great extent. Like, for example, when you watch Full House, those kids only come in and out of the room as they're needed. Mm-hmm. And it seems like sometimes when you watch TV shows, the only time that a baby or a child is referenced <laughs> to is when it is used to pull the story a certain way. Yes. That was not so with the Brady Bunch or Little House on the Prairie. Those two shows were built around the children. And like I said, you would think Full or, you know, Full House was that way, but really it was the adults taking care of the kids. Right. In a way, I know that when I saw Peter Brady having uh, you know, problems with his voice cracking, for example. I went through that. I, I had a very bad stuttering problem growing up. I still have this stuttering problem, but I remember seeing that and going, well, that's something I can relate to in a way. You know what I mean? That, And then, yes. of course, his imitating Humphrey Bogart with pork chops <laughs> and applesauce. As a kid, I realized that when I imitated people, I didn't stutter. Mm. So I really identified with that pork chops and applesauce thing because I was a little kid running around imitating all four of the Beatles at the age of five. You know what I mean? Driving everybody crazy. I would listen to announcers and I would walk around the house. And now on CKLW's top five, you know, (laughs) because I didn't stutter when I was imitating, you know, a character or a news announcer or a disc jockey. So, So I would look at uh, Peter and, you know, whether it's his voice cracking or imitating people or trying to save money. That was my life. Right. So and a little that. little uh, teen detective. Remember, he was Sherlock Holmes yes. and stuff for a while. <laughs> yes. So I think that's one of the reasons I really, you know, being a boy of around that age, that that seemed like he really spoke to me. But this TV show was not built around uh like for example you watch breaking bad as brilliant as a show that is the only time that the kid whether it be the baby or or finn the adult is really mentioned is when they need it to push the show in a in a different direction right yeah that's so true but it's it's strange because we we have come to accept that as a storytelling device where it's almost the opposite of Chekhov's gun. Here's the kids, <laughs> but they won't show up until we need them, right? So so I think that was one thing that set the Brady Bunch apart. And uh, it was never a big hit. It wasn't. It was never a big hit. It only ran for five seasons. 
um, a very abrupt finale that that uh, they didn't know was going to be a finale at the time. Yeah, it, it just it's one of those things. I think part of the reason is that years later, like we were the way that we're talking about it now, we knew at the time or maybe the whenever the first time that someone watched it was, uh, whether it was later in syndication or in the 80s or now. As a kid, you realize that you like the the you like everything. You like the fun clothes, even if you know now they're out of date to you. You like the fact that they have all these siblings running around. For me, I that was one of my favorite parts of watching the show is is just that they always had someone to play with. There was always someone around. You know, they were good looking kids, but they weren't so good looking that you couldn't identify with them as, you know, normal kids that were attractive kids. You identified, as you said, I love that's one of the best stories I've heard about the way that, you know, you identify specifically with one of the characters or the things that they're going through. But you don't necessarily necessarily realize those things until you are an adult, though. Again, as I said to you earlier, I love that that Carol and Mike and Alice were just, they were really devoted to nothing more than making sure these kids were happy and healthy and all those things, but also that they were good human beings, that they didn't lie, that they didn't steal, that they shared, that, you know, all of those things that they made them face up to when they did have a problem, because it was going to make them a better adult that they put out into the world for everybody else to deal with and, and, you know, enjoy or, or not enjoy if they didn't turn out to be good kids. And I think that so many of these things you just you can't really fully appreciate until you are an adult and you you see how much these characters and those storylines and the things that Sherwood Schwartz chose to do and stuck to his guns about that even the network executives thought the show was, you know, too square, too kind of frivolous, they too silly sometimes. They agreed with some of Robert Reed's sentiments in that area. But he stuck to his guns. He knew this was the show that he wanted to make that was for kids that would mean something to them. And if I had to choose one reason, I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons that it it endures today. But I think that's the number one reason. He made all of those decisions. He stuck to them. And he was right. Mm -hmm. You know, you look back on the show and I remember it airing. I remember having the opportunity to buy the lunchbox. I, now when I look back at uh, the fashions of the time, I just itch because there are <laughs> pictures of me wearing some of those horrible Kmart clothes, I'm going to call them. Nothing against Kmart, but just really bad polyester, right? Like, Did you have I, the striped pants? and uh, Yeah. I don't want to talk about it. too much maroon. <laughs> just too much maroon. <laughs> But there was a lot of memorabilia that came out of the Bradys. Would you like to talk about some of the things that, you know, popped up? Yeah. I still desperately want a Brady Bunch lunchbox. Um, they are pricey and not, I mean, you can find them on eBay. Uh, to find a pristine one is, I think, a a unicorn. I'm not sure that, I, I mean, I'm sure there are some somewhere, but um even to find one in not great shape, it's several hundred dollars. For me, the the lunchbox is kind of the most iconic of the memorabilia because it was so just gorgeously designed and it depicted the honeymoon episode, the pilot, and everything that happened there. 
Uh, but also it's now in the Smithsonian in their pop culture collection. Mm-hmm. So I think it's what most people kind of identify with as one of the main bits of, of memorabilia. There was also an actual Kitty Carryall doll, mm-hmm. uh, Cindy's famous doll. Um, there were a lot of, of course, their music, the, the albums that they released. Those were a, a great uh, bit of memorabilia. And then there were a lot of kind of things that every TV show at the time would have, the puzzles and games, coloring books, mm-hmm. paperback. There were a couple of paperback stories. Were there braiding cards? There were. There's a great set of trading of trading cards, which I think actually came later. And those also can fetch quite the, the sum on eBay. Um, I've never actually seen a whole set of them, but but individual cards even um, get 50, 60, 70. I've seen a couple get or, or be uh, the sellers were asking for a couple of hundred dollars for some of them. Um, yeah, they there was pretty much everything that every TV show at the time had. Coloring books were, were a really big one. Uh, and I know a couple of people who have some of those. And there are, are people who have very large collections of braiding memorabilia. Um, there's a, a woman who does a website called Brady Mania, and she wrote a book uh, in the 90s also called Brady Mania. Um, and she has a huge collection of Brady goodies. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think that because the show was aimed at kids, there was opportunity to merch, of course. Mm-hmm. Did you have the lunchbox, by the way? Oh, no. I wouldn't have been caught dead with that. There are two reasons. <laughs> it it, it kind of messed things up for me because it was painted. Gotcha. Meaning that this was a painting and not a photograph, a cast photograph, right? Yeah. And I always that always bothered me. Like when you'd see a Beatles lunchbox back in the time, it was this really cheesy painting of them, right? It wasn't... Okay. I wanted a picture, right? Yeah. Now, the Batman stuff, since he came from comics, I could understand. That's okay. That's painted. I get that. But I w- right. if I would have wanted, I would have wanted the photos. You know what I mean? So, and there's no way I was going to waste my time on Brady Bunch uh, cards. You know, give me Batman, give me Six Million Dollar Man, or Kiss. Now, you want to talk about a lunchbox and collectible cards? Kiss. That's where I wound up at. So, oh. you know, but that was that was yet to come, right? But <laughs> amazing graphics. I I, yeah. I don't know that lunchbox, but I'm just imagining what it must. Oh, have it's been. it's a collector's too. It's just a picture of them, but you know, it's that's marketing, right? And when yeah. you think about the marketing. Let's go back to the 60s because just as Elvis had reinvented marketing for teenagers, mm-hmm. the Beatles did as too. You know, the Beatles did that as well. Right. And the Monkees, right? And yes. really, this show has as much to do with the Monkees as the Partridge family does, right? But the big key difference is, is that with the Beatles and the Monkees, and pop idols of the 60s, we were seeing adults being marketed to teens, meaning that everybody in the Beatles was over 18. Everybody in the Monkees was over 18. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just the way it was. Bobby Sherman, over 18. By the time we get to the Brady Bunch, we've got the biggest pop stars in the world at the time were Donny Osmond, uh, Michael Jackson, and teens being pushed on teens instead of adults being pushed on teens. Because we started out with, like, the 50s. You had Elvis and Big Bopper, right? Right. 
the guy was like probably close to being in his 40s at the time. And here, here young teens at your sock <laughs> right. hop. Here's the big bopper. Well, now we've got young kids aimed at young kids. Yes. So there's good to that. And there's bad to that, right? Like we've mm-hmm. seen uh, from Family Affair, uh, Jody, that young man, oh, he, you know, yeah. there's there's pictures of him without a shirt. They're trying to sell a 45 and it's kind of creepy. You know what I mean? Right. But the Brady Bunch were never creepy. And you had Tiger Beat and 16 Magazine that were yes. all too ready to give you a Brady special magazine, for example, <laughs> or the kids would yeah. have their own columns yes. in the magazine. and. It was at that time that we really saw that shift in marketing from marketing adults to teens as being the cool thing to teens marketing, teens being marketed as the cool thing. Yes, that's I mean, that was uh, I certainly was a huge, huge fan of the 16 magazine and Tiger Beat and all those things. And um, some of the the articles I had the chance to to read a, a lot of them when I was researching the book. Um, just some of the things I remember one, because it still stands out to me so much, Peter Brady. And that's the other thing they would always refer to them as their character, Mm -hmm. uh, in the headlines. So Peter Brady tells you what he's looking for in a girl, you know, 16 things he's looking for in a girl. And he's like 12 at the time, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, but it's this, as you said, it's, it's still the same topics being marketed Mm -hmm. to kids but about other kids. And whereas if you, you know, you, if you were seeing that about, I don't know why this one came to mind, but chips, I remember Eric Estrada was um, Mm -hmm. a big teen magazine presence. And you would see those articles, 10 things that, that Eric Estrada looks for in a girl. But then when you're, you would see the same article about a 12 year old boy and, and all of the cast members of, of the Brady Bunch. And it, it, uh, that's, so true. That really was a big shift in that. And, um, I, I mean, I think that was a great time to be a teenager and have all of those magazines. And, and I mean, I believed them, of course we all did. Oh, well this must absolutely be true. I mean, little did we know that sometimes they, most of the time they weren't actually writing these things or even doing an interview for a lot of those articles. But, um, we certainly believe that these were fact. Mm -hmm. This is absolutely what Peter Brady looked for in a girl. Mm-hmm. I mentioned the monkeys earlier. Like you mm-hmm. had uh, Mickey Dolan's. That was not his original name. Right. But mm-hmm. that show dealt with their names being their characters name as well. So it was interesting to see, like, for example, you mentioned the, what Peter Brady looks for in a girl. Right. Right. But then that led to what does Gene Simmons look for in a girl? And that's on an entirely <laughs> different magazine. Yes. And then if, when the village people became really big, it's like, what does David Hodo look for in a girl? And it's like <laughs> someone to do his laundry. So that's a whole nother side story there, but, uh, but I'm so, but we saw the show succeed despite what was being looked at as hip and all the critics and everything, the mm-hmm. show wrapped up and it had a great run, but it really didn't pop until syndication. And it's something that it seems like almost every generation has grown up with the Brady's. Right. And there's Absolutely. been so many spinoffs and I'd love to have you come back on another day and talk about these nightmarish creations in some cases <laughs> you, you had the four albums that they did right yes and those four albums were 
Merry oh, Christmas from the Brady Bunch. Meet yes. the Brady Bunch. The kids from the Brady Bunch. <laughs> and the Brady Bunch phonographic album. And those see, all seem to be based around the Partridge family style of putting out an album, if you will. Right. And the ki- the Brady kids very much wanted, there was a period where they very much wanted to, uh, to, to have some of that musical success that the Partridge family had had. Not all of them loved to sing. Uh, some of them did and very much wanted music careers after the show ended. And that caused uh, some strife with uh, Sherwood Schwartz and, and Lloyd Schwartz uh, leading into the last season of the show. Um, the kids kind of were, were trying to demand that, that he add in more musical numbers. And he didn't want the show Again, Sherwood was very clear on what he wanted the show to be and what he didn't want the show to be. He thought it was fun when they did the occasional musical number and fans loved it. Uh, and that it, those are my, if I had to pick one all-time favorite episode, it would be uh, Amateur Night, which is AKA the Silver Platters episode. I, there's That to me is a quintessential Brady episode. It's just so much fun, all the characters doing what they do best. and uh, But he didn't want the show to become the Partridge family, even though the Partridge family had much better ratings than the Brady Bunch. Mm-hmm. And that caused some tension between the, he, he and the cast, the kid cast going into to last season, but he stuck to his guns. I think I'll go for a walk outside now. The summer sun's calling my name. I hear you now. I just can't stay inside all When you think about it, that goes all the way back to Ricky Nelson, right? Right up yeah. through the monkeys, right on up through the Archies, right up on through the Partridge family. And it still happens today. Almost every Disney or Nickelodeon show, those <laughs> kids all wound up singing. I mean, yes. Ariana Grande, right? Demi Lovato, right. all those people that were in all of those shows. It's it's the it's the formula, folks. This is yeah. what Hollywood is built on, built on the backs of kids. So. Yes. There's good and bad to that, right? So Definitely. The great thing is that for as scandalous as anything that is in your book, and there are some weird things, like, for example, Carol Brady, Florence Henderson, uh, admitting that she may have killed her husband. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because there's some discussion about, okay, Mike's (laughs) wife passed away, but what happened to Carol Brady's husband and yes uh, there was a time where they were thinking about doing a storyline with the father of the girls but that could have been really disastrous for the setup of the show for the sweetness of the show right right 
it's only in the big screen Brady movies that they they finally explore some of those. You know, they kind of poke fun at at some of the things, those questions that people always have about the Brady Bunch. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they had a lot of fun with that. But, uh, yeah, they the network was very very insistent because Sherwood Schwartz did want to say specifically what had happened uh, to Carol's husband. He wanted her to be divorced, but the, the network would just not permit that. They were not willing to go that far. And as you said, that's really another, um, that's a, a really a, another acknowledgement to how groundbreaking that concept was at the time. They already thought they were going out on a limb by depicting this blended family they absolutely weren't going to let them say that carol was divorced then on top of it right and we mentioned lucille ball it hadn't been but what 10 years earlier that a couple couldn't even be in the same bed like mike and carol right eventually wound up in the same bed that was quite a shocking thing at the time it was, and Carol with her cute little nightgowns and everything. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, they were a beautiful couple. They really were um, a very attractive couple, and they were very affectionate with each other. And yeah, that was that we forget now because we're so used to seeing so many crazy things on TV. Um, but this was something that people saw every week on the show. And it's kind of made them used to seeing a couple in bed together being affectionate, this, you know, fairly young and, and hip for the time. I mean, yes, they were square in in their, their lectures to Mike's lectures to the kids and all those things, but they were, uh, you know, a pretty modern looking acting affectionate again in those cute little nightgowns uh, that she wore. And, uh, and my, and Robert Reed was certainly an attractive guy. Um, they were a, a kind of parent, a couple that we hadn't seen on TV before. Mm-hmm. And I always could tell, even when I was a kid, that there is a freak in Florence Henderson. And I mean that in the best <laughs> way possible. I saw her dance on the Paul Lind Halloween special. You know what I'm talking about. But, I uh... do. You know, one of the words that people always use to describe her, we have this image of her as Carol Brady, mm-hmm. um, this wholesome mom. But Every single person I've ever talked to her about her who knew her and knew her well and spent a lot of time with her, especially the word that always comes up is that she was body. She had a very body sense of humor. Um, you know, she was a little naughty with her sense of humor. Very fun. Everyone loved it about her. But certainly not if, if all you know of Florence Henderson is Carol Brady, you're going to be pretty shocked to find out that, that she has this sense of humor. Well, there was this whole other life, right? Mm-hmm. that was the real people versus the characters. And right. your book doesn't try to be sensationalistic, but it just talks about these things as a matter of fact. And some of the struggles that you had nightclub singing Florence Henderson and a yeah. closeted Robert Reed who had to deal with everything that comes along with it and how you yeah. had to hide it back then. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just a fascinating book. I was surprised to find out that Eve Plum had a crush on Jack Klugman of all people. <laughs> I loved that too. <laughs> so bizarre. But your book is full of everything that you'd want out of a Brady's book. I, to me, 
I love looking at not only how the show from its development, because see, I'm the kind of guy that like when someone puts a book out, like let's say a rock star writes a book. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily want to hear about who they were dating in 1984. I want to hear how they wrote this song and what yes. they did in the studio to produce it. This is what we get with your book. We we follow the idea of the inspiration, how the inspiration became something more than a dream. And then you deal with each stage of the cultural impact of what this thing became and is still going on i mean it was just this last year yes that we had the home and garden television what was it called uh, a very brady renovation right mm-hmm. and the brady's have become cartoons yes <laughs> coloring books cards lunch boxes they've become tv movies they've become porn movies uh, yes apparently there's a school of thought that you really don't make it until there's been a porn parody of you right and i think the first time i realized that was in the 80s when rambone came out <laughs> instead of rambo oh no <laughs> the brady's uh and, and sex track and so on and so forth but the brady's are not immune from that as well and there were the revivals that we saw in the theater yes in the movies we we saw the complete recasting which was a love affair to all things late 60s and 70s uh, the monkeys are there as we yes. mentioned the partridges everything is in that movie every little bit every little catchphrase marsha 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 to the broken nose and <laughs> just everything and it's all there it is and brought a whole new fan uh, generation of fans to the show, I think. And I would love to have you come back and talk about just the spinoffs. I think we should do an episode just on that someday. I love it. I would love to. Excellent. So we will save that for that. So the name of the book is The Way We All Became the Brady Bunch. This is available at every bookstore it's available for yes. kindle or electronically Definitely. or you can order it on amazon to get the hard copy whatever you need to do you can also go to kimberlypots.com what will people find at kimberlypots.com they will find uh information on the book the other interviews and and coverage of the book there are links to my twitter and instagram and all that fun stuff I tried to do some fun things with marketing the book it's a gorgeous cover. I'm really, 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 I had nothing to do with it. Um, but I was so pleased. A lot of authors hate their book covers. Um, but I want a poster of this one because it's just, it's so gorgeous and perfect. And there's a little tiny Alice uh, mm-hmm. in front of the, the house, uh, opening the door to the house. And it just, I think Alice is a very, very special part of the show. I don't think you can overestimate how important she is to the show. And and when you ask people, aside from the kids and, and having their favorite kid character, Alice is pretty universally beloved for, for people who love the Brady Bunch. So that was that was really special to have her on the cover. Yeah, so they'll find all kinds of information about the book and other things that I've written, other places that I've written. and uh, But there's a lot of Brady love there. Absolutely. So pick up The Way We All Became the Brady Bunch to find out about the show's creation, the creation of the theme song, the creation of the title cards, uh, how each of the cast members were picked, a bit about each of the cast members, 
and the pop cultural significance and impact, which is still going on to this day. So I highly recommend if you are a Brady Bunch, if you are a Brady Bunch fan, this is a book you're going to want to have for your collection. It's a really good read. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you so much. That uh, that makes me so happy to hear. So we will have you back on a future episode of Pop, and we will talk about more things Brady and other pop culture things with you at some point. I'm sure. Uh, I want to th- I want to thank you for coming on Pop today with Ken Mills and uh, having some coffee with me and talking about <laughs> one of the greatest things to come out of our pop culture from the 70s, the, the decade that gave you Alice the Maid and Alice Cooper. That's right, the <laughs> 70s. And <laughs> I love that. Well, that that was the that was uh, the seventies. It was a really weird time. You had uh, Little House on the Prairie and the best little whorehouse in Texas. You had <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre right along with that house. So it was a very strange time. You had Pat Boone, uh, the Muppets, Nixon, and <laughs> Alice Cooper. It was that was it, right? Village People, Kiss, and Donny Osmond and Michael Jackson. It was. What a bizarre decade! It and but wow, what a just a boon for for pop culture. All those things were. Yep, for good or for bad, it got us to where we are. So exactly. And before we go, we'd like to thank Lauren Passell from Tink Media for setting this up and introducing us. Right. Absolutely, Lauren is the best. Uh, incredible knowledge of podcasts and wants to share that knowledge with everyone. Um, and if you are looking for a podcast on any topic, go to Lauren at Tink Media, uh, look her up, ask her because she will love to give you several recommendations on any topic you can possibly want to hear about. Well, she must know about good podcasts. She contacted me. So. Exactly. <laughs> I am forever grateful. Well, again, the name of the book is The Way We All Became the Brady Bunch, written by my friend Kimberly Potts. I want to thank you for coming on the show today and spending some time with us. Thank you, Ken. I had a great time, and I can't wait to chat more. Very good. So check her out at KimberlyPotts.com, and you want to tell folks where they can find you on the socials? Uh, Yes, TV Screener on both um, Instagram and Twitter. Excellent. So we will see you all on the next episode of Pop with Ken Mills or maybe the Fun Size Show or whatever comes up next in the feed. This is uh, its own network within itself. So thank you for listening today. We'll see you all in the next episode. Say, see ya, Kimberly. See ya, Kimberly. Good job. (laughs) (laughs) That was so fun, Ken. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I loved it. And that's our show. Pop is an online, nonprofit pop culture audio fanzine made for fans by fans. Any samples of music, TV, or movies heard here remain the property of their owners. Pop, a pop culture podcast, is not affiliated with any products we review or discuss. Opinions heard here belong to the people who express them and may not reflect the views of the pop staff. If you like something that you heard, buy it at your local record, video, or bookstores, or wherever pop is found. If you enjoy the show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm your announcer, Christine Wolf, saying whatever you do, make sure it pops. <laughs>